0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Thanks, Jeff. It's a blessing when people are able to use their gifts and enhance our experience in hearing God's Word. And I'm grateful for Jeff. Jeff. The title of this morning's message is The Letter to the Church at Smyrna, and the subtitle might be Overcoming Suffering. In his book, The Problem of Pain, um, famous author and thinker C.S. Lewis really wrote something very profound and simple. He said God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, But shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement that nothing seems to wake up our soul and grab our attention the way that pain does. And if you're a person who struggles with prayer, I will bet you that when real pain visits your life, you will struggle a little less with prayer. Prayer will be like breathing when you're drowning. It'll be like breaking through the surface of the water when you're rising from the depths. You can't wait to suck in that air and breathe and live. And the church at Smyrna was a suffering church. It was a church that was really going through a very, very difficult situation. And so Jesus wrote this letter to the church at Smyrna to bring hope and encouragement to a church that was getting... Everything beat out of them. Now, like I said last week, before you can fully understand the weight of the letter, you've got to understand that the church Jesus is writing to existed in a real city, a real setting. And in order to get the full weight of the letter, you've got to know something about that city. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background on the city of Smyrna. In many ways, Smyrna rivaled Ephesus. You remember last week, I told you, Ephesus was the most prominent city in Asia Minor. Uh, It was wealthy, but so was Smyrna. Smyrna had a a better harbor than Ephesus, and as a result, they really excelled in export trade. That's a shot of the ruins of the Agora in the middle of ancient Smyrna, and it was a large marketplace. It was a very wealthy, booming, commerce-oriented city. Around the time they received the letter, the population was about 200,000 people. And it's interesting that of all the cities Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2-3, to Smyrna is the only city that still exists. It's no longer called Smyrna, but today it's called the modern city of Izmir, Turkey. We have some friends serving the Lord there, and some of you have actually been there. If you've been to Izmir, you've been to the ancient city of Smyrna, to which Jesus addressed this letter. Now, Here's the thing about the city of Smyrna, the ancient city. In 600 BC, it had been completely destroyed and leveled by the king of Lydia, a guy named Aliates. About 300 years later, when Alexander the Great rolled through that area, he saw that it was a beautiful setting and a city used to stand there, and so he commissioned that the city should be rebuilt from the ground up, a brand-new city. Not unlike Chicago, that after it was leveled by a fire, was built brand new. And so two of his successors, um, built in in the year 290 BC, they rebuilt the city from the ground up. And it was a marvel to behold. It was, they said, by all accounts, the most beautiful city in Asia Minor in the ancient world. This is just one example of one of these archways that just went all over the city. Uh, They had a street called the Street of Gold. And it was just a, an amazing architectural feat to have these walkways, these um, huge temples, a massive theater. They had, in fact, the largest theater in the ancient world at the time. So it was a beautiful city. But here's the thing. Against the backdrop of this wealthy, vibrant, beautiful, cultured city, the church in Smyrna suffered almost constantly. The beauty of the city that the church existed in only served to enhance how pathetic and how hard their life was. I I remember meeting with the pastor of a very small church in New York City, always struggling to make ends meet, could not afford anything, had to live with another family even though he was a pastor because they just could not scrape together. And that's because the people they were reaching were not the wealthy elite of the city. They were among the poorest immigrants of the city And he said, it's really hard to struggle this much, but every day to see that struggle against the backdrop of one of the greatest, wealthiest, most powerful cities in the world. And that was the experience of the people who were trying to do church in the city of ancient Smyrna. To this church, Jesus writes a letter that is intended to bring encouragement and hope in the midst of their suffering. And so he really says two big things that I want to highlight for you. In this letter to the church in Smyrna, and the first thing he says to them in the midst of their suffering is he says I see you. I see you. Smyrna was a very hostile environment to be a Christian. Smyrna was very well known for its long standing and almost rabid level of loyalty to the Roman Empire. Though they were not themselves Romans, they had been conquered by Rome, there's always that group among any conquered peoples who, be, who turns their, their defeat into a complete lunatic-like loyalty to the oppressor. And that's what the Smyrna people were like. They said, go Rome. And they were so completely loyal, Rome got, it got Rome's attention. Of all the ancient cities, they were the only one who built a temple to the goddess of Rome. They had, in fact, deified the city and got together and worshipped Rome itself as though she were a goddess. This is the ruins of the ancient temple to Dea Roma. So complete was their devotion to Rome that when emperor worship really began to be instituted, they were among the most loyal subjects of the empire. And without fail, they would swear allegiance and worship the emperor as lord. So that that was one of the strikes that the, the people, the church in Smyrna had going against it, was that everyone in the prevailing culture was very loyal to Rome and believed that Caesar was Lord. If you failed to recognize that, you could not join any of the trade guilds. You could not make a very good living. It was a lot of strikes against you if you stood against Rome in that way. But they were also getting it from another side because the city of Smyrna had a huge Jewish population, and this Jewish population could not stand the Christians. They considered the Christians to be a defect, an uh, an abomination of Judaism, a sect of their own religion that had gotten it all wrong and saw God the wrong way. And so some of the most vigorous persecution that the Christians faced in Smyrna came at the hands of their cousins, the Jews. The refusal to declare that that Caesar was Lord and the refusal to denounce Christ as just a good teacher and not the Savior caused the people in Smyrna to get persecution from both ends. It was very, very difficult for them to continue operating as a church. And so this little church in Smyrna struggled just to survive. You know, just 35 miles to the south, the church in Ephesus was like a mega church with a thriving ministry. They were producing program after program. They were the anchoring flagship church of the region. But just 35 miles north in Smyrna, this church was barely making it day to day. So you can imagine the amazing encouragement that was brought to them when Jesus spoke the words, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Some of you have suffered genuinely in your life, haven't you? Some of you might be going through it right now, but but chances are a good number of us have tasted real suffering in this earthly life. And one of the things that makes suffering so hard is this feeling that I'm going through it alone. In the early stages of suffering, there are usually a lot of people who will surround you, but eventually they need to move on with their lives. And for them... Your suffering was a story, a big one, an important one, but it was just a story. They also have a life to live. And so after a while, it starts to feel like you're suffering in isolation. You're invisible, alone, and even when you try to bring it up, people are like, oh, this again. We've got to move on. And so one of the things that makes suffering so hard to bear is that for many who suffer for a long time, they feel like they're doing it completely unseen and completely unaccompanied. You know, it always haunts me when I hear these news stories about people who are wrongly accused and convicted and sentenced to jail, and they rot in a jail cell for like 10, 15, 20 years until they're exonerated. I want you to think about that. What is going through the heart of a person who is sitting alone in a jail cell rotting, and every single day they know they're innocent? They haven't done anything wrong. If I think about it too much, I just start screaming in my car. Like, I can't take it. It, Think about every day knowing you've done nothing wrong, and every single day you're bound. And you say to the guards, you got to understand, I am innocent. I didn't do what they said I did. And the guards just roll their eyes and go, yeah, everyone in here is innocent. But in your heart you know. Now, I want you to think about what that feels like. How alone. And you're sitting looking out the window thinking the worst part of it is that whole big world out there just keeps going on without you. You're losing some of the best years of your life. And the worst part is no one even knows you're in there. No one even thinks about you or cares. You are an invisible and discarded human being. But just imagine the ray of hope that would come into your heart if one day you got a surprise visitor and there's this young attorney with hipster glasses and he looks real earnest and he says, hey, listen, we know about your case. We looked into it and we know you are not guilty. You're in here wrongly accused. And we are working very hard out there to get you out. So you hang on. We see you, we know you, and we are doing everything in our power to get you released. Now, I want you to think about how much hope would flood that person's heart the very next day. They're still in chains, their body is still in prison, but their heart comes to life because they're no longer alone, invisible, discarded. I think it's important for us to understand in our suffering that Jesus sees us. Maybe the world has moved on, but Jesus will not just move on and say to you, "Uh, that story, not again. He will never say that to you. He always sees you. And if you're struggling, and part of what makes it so hard is you feel like you're struggling alone, you need to, to bank and park your heart at this place, that Jesus sees everything you're going through, and he really does understand. But here's another thing. When Jesus says, I see you, because he is more than we are, he also means this. I don't just see what you're going through. I actually see you. I see things in you you don't even see. Listen to what he says. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. That doesn't make any sense because at no human level are those words true. But that's what Jesus is saying is I look at you and when you look at yourself, when others look at you, all they see is your bad situation. They see a small, struggling, poor church. Nobody would give a second thought to it. If you were visiting, you wouldn't come back. This is not a church that's a winning church. It's a church on the brink of death. And so when everybody else looks at them, all they see is a pathetic situation. But Jesus says, I look at you, and yes, I do see that, but I see past your pain and past your situation, I actually see your spirit. And he says to them, you need to know this, that while your exterior circumstances are pathetic, I see your spirit and you are rich. What he says is your spirit, despite all this stacked against you, is not weak and broken and dead. It is strong and it is alive. It is fighting and it is beautiful. And you need to know that the suffering, the struggle is in fact enhancing the beauty and the aliveness of your spirit. The apostle Peter wrote about this dynamic when he said, In all this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying this suffering you're going through, may be very difficult at the time, but in much the same way that pressure over time compresses coal into a diamond. The struggles you're going through are making you more beautiful, more alive, more strong than you could imagine. Now, we don't like that news because we'd prefer to just have comfort and never mind a strong soul who needs that. I'd rather have a strong life, not a strong spirit. But what Jesus says is, you think you are poor, but you're richer than everyone else. You know, I should just mention at this point, of the seven churches that received letters, only two churches received no rebuke from Jesus. Smyrna was one of them, and Philadelphia was the other. Every other church said, hey, good job, but, bang, rebuke. Only two churches hear no complaint, no rebuke from Jesus, and both of them are the smallest, poorest, least powerful churches of the seven. Isn't that interesting? That the winning churches aren't always winning, but the churches that look on the brink of death on their last dying breath Jesus looked at them and he says, there's something alive and beautiful and strong about you in the ashes of all this ruin and pain. The most pathetic person is one whose circumstances are pathetic and their soul is pathetic too. That in the midst of pain, they don't reach out for God. They don't come alive. They just complain. And they make everyone else miserable. And while their circumstances may never improve, the worst tragedy is their soul is withering. So that the inside matches the outside. And Jesus looked at these churches and said, what is so beautiful about you is that the truth of the gospel, my presence in your life, has created something. So that even though the outside is dying, the inside is springing to life. This is the power of God in a person's life. Everybody struggles, but not everybody comes alive through it. And so he says, you need to pay attention to why that's happening, what is going on in you. Don't let the world tell you you're dying. Let me tell you that you are alive and kicking. Perhaps one of the most powerful illustrations of this this pressure turning into beautiful devotion to Christ comes in the testimony, the life of a man named Polycarp. I never liked that name. I just think of a guy with multiple fish heads or something. It was Polycarp. But Polycarp, as a man, was a giant of the faith history. He happened to be, at the time, the bishop, the chief leader of the church of Smyrna, which um, is not really a huge boast if you're the the head leader of the smallest, struggling, poorest, least powerful church. But you know what it was? Even though he wasn't the, the guy who would stand on the platform at a major conference, he was the guy who remained faithful to the end. He was the real deal. He wasn't a man who was a cardboard cutout reputation. He loved Jesus with all his heart. And when persecution broke out, they thought, let's, let's break him first, because if you get the leader, you break the spirit of all the followers. Why do you think one after another... Christian leaders in this country are falling to the seduction of power, money, greed, sex. One by one, they're falling like dominoes. Because if they get the leader, you can destroy a church. So they said, let's break Polycarp. Let's get him to renounce Christ. He's 86 years old. He's an old dude. He doesn't have much fight in him. Let's just bully him a little, threaten him with some stuff, and go, what's the harm? All right. Caesar is Lord. Big deal. I don't mean it. I'll repent later. And that was the way that they were thinking. It's just words. Just say the words. Say them publicly, and we will gain a little victory, and we'll get rid of this Christian problem, this nuisance in the city. But Polycarp refused to bend. Now, I wonder What we would have done in that situation. Hey, wisdom says, just say the words. Say, sorry, Lord, I didn't mean it. Cross your fingers. Live to fight another day. Polycarp said, look, I'm not going to do it. And he refused. And finally, they put him at the stake. And they were going to burn him alive. And these were his last words. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he said to them, the fire you threaten me with will burn for a while and it'll be over. But there's a fire that will last forever. So do to me whatever you want. This was the highest spiritual leader in the city of Smyrna. And this was the example he set. And I just couldn't help but being pierced in my heart thinking about myself and all my fellow Christian leaders. We love today to set a good example in right, clean living. We love to set a good example in budgeting and a sound financial life. We love to set a good example in a good marriage, loving children, a great suburban, stable life. But I wonder, do we love to set a good example in suffering? Are we seeing today among our Christian leaders an example of how to suffer in a way that brings honor to Jesus Christ? Where are those heroes I heard the stories of several of them when I was in South Africa, and they really stirred my heart. And this week as I was preparing this message, I just kept pausing to pray, God, if the time comes that I have to suffer, let me do it like Polycarp. Don't let me buckle. If I'm ever going to set an example for our church, let it be in how to suffer, not just in how to live a good life. Here's the second thing that Jesus says to bring hope to this church. He says, I've got you. I've got you. Back in 2005, when I was starting the Aero Leadership Program, they took us repelling. And uh, that's not actually anyone from our group, this is a picture I found on Google. But it's look, it looks almost exactly like the setting I was at. So that's why I drew my attention. What I realized when I was repelling, was that as I I reached that point of no return, that crazy moment where you're walking backwards off of a cliff, this was about a 65, 70-foot drop-off. I had actually peered over the edge of it, and I said, wow, that's pretty far to fall. And then I just started walking backwards. And at that moment where I stepped over and he said, you're at that point of no return, I realized how much faith I was placing in a number of things. In the integrity of that rope, in the intelligence of the person who tied the knots, And in the strength and the presence of mind of the guy who was belaying me. Right? Belaying is, when you're an amateur repeller, you don't get to self-belay. That's the ticket to death. And so they let out the rope little by little and encourage you to keep going down. And I just thought at the moment, the last thought I had in my mind was, man, I'm I'm putting a lot of faith in these guys. I'm not afraid of heights, but I'm afraid of dying. Okay? I don't, I have no problem with heights, but I'm afraid. I have a problem with some guy not tying the knots right, and then I die. And so as I'm going over, I'm thinking, this is what faith really is. It's not theoretical. It's that moment you go, all right, I guess this is all I've got between me and death is what I believe in. And I just remember the last thing I saw going over the edge was the guy belaying me. He was really good at his job. He kept looking at me and goes, don't worry. I got you. I got you. And I was surprised how much comfort that brought me. And I just stepped over. I'm like, this is insanity. I'm stepping backwards over a cliff. But this guy keeps going, I got you. He's a big brawny dude, and he had the the, the rope tied around his arms and around his waist. He's like, I got you. I'm like, all right then, let's do this. And I went backwards. I thought, what a great picture that is of what belief really means. See, pain and suffering are so disruptive to the human spirit Because what it does is it punches you in the face and it gets you disoriented. You don't know which way is up, which way is down, what to trust, what to believe. Everything seems like it's up in the air. And you feel kind of like you're in free fall. And you wonder, how is this going to end? Because I have a feeling it's not going to end well. Are some of you there right now? In the midst of a situation so big, you have no control over how it's going to end. Maybe another person who's got your heart in their hand and they're crushing it slowly and you're dying. Maybe you're a victim of this economy. And there's nothing you can do right now but see how the story plays out. And that kind of suffering and struggle really is confusing for the human spirit. Jesus is writing this letter to a church on the brink of death this church in Smyrna was on its gasping, dying breath. And he has the audacity to say to them, can we get the next? I don't know what's wrong with this. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. They're already struggling. And here's what Jesus says. Oh, by the way, it's bad now, but it's going to get worse. Some of you are going to get put in jail for 10 days. Many think that's a reference to the story Jeannie taught about Daniel's trial of 10 days, that it's going to be a hard trial, but it won't last forever. But then he said, but then some of you are also going to end up getting killed because of your faith. So it's bad now. It's going to get worse. But listen, don't be afraid. How does anybody have the audacity to say that? To say to you, It's going to get really bad. Some of you are going to die, but don't worry. Don't be afraid. You know why he can say that? It's because he says to them a couple things that are very, very important. He says to them in the the introduction to the letter, I am the first and the last. What that means is before there was anything else, I was... Whatever power you think you're in the grips of, whatever great force you think is at work in your life, I came before it. I am King of kings, Lord of lords. I am sovereign God. There was nothing before me. Everything else was made, but I have always been from the beginning. When I make this promise to you, when I tell you don't be afraid, open your eyes and know who's saying this to you. There is no one before me, Jesus says. And then he says, I'm not just first, I'm last. Which means when all these kings have done their worst, when the economy has ravaged you and they've taken your very life, I will always have the last word. The story doesn't just end randomly. The story ends how I say it ends. Jesus tells us that no matter how you meet your first death, he's in charge of how the story ends. He also says to them, not only am I powerful, the sovereign God before all things and the one who will have the last word, but he says, I was also the one. What is going on here? I'm also the one who died and came to life again. That's important because this church felt like it was about to die. And anybody who sat at the brink of death, watched someone they love slowly die in front of them, knows how permanent, how final that feels. And What Jesus said is, I know that for you, death seems like the end of the story. But I want you to always remember me. Because I beat death. It wasn't the end of my story, and it will most certainly not be the end of your story either. And he gives them this assurance. He says that to the one who puts their faith in me and is victorious in the end, the one who does not take away their faith but continues to place their faith in me, he says to them, you will get the victor's crown and you will not at all be hurt by the second death. The second death was an old Jewish term that referred to hell. We learn in Revelation 20, 14, it refers to the lake of fire. Here's what he says. They can do whatever they want in this life. Everybody will die. Everybody will go through the first death. But you don't have to be hurt by the second death. Because the second death is forever. What he's saying is you have to understand everybody will finish their time on this earth. But the confidence, the promise I give you is that the end of this story doesn't have to be the end of your story. And if you place your faith in me, no matter what happens here, I'm holding out for you the promise of eternal life. At the end of it all, how you live your life will flow out of how much you really believe that. Do you understand that? Think about what gets you so angry. So depressed, so insecure, so disappointed with your life. And, and that will reveal to you the things you really believe are worthy in life. What life really is about. I'm disappointed that my beautiful face is no longer as beautiful as it used to be. Some of, some of us are really struggling, aren't we? Watching everything in the mirror change. I'm disappointed that I thought at this stage of my life I'd be wealthier, healthier, more successful. But my life is a big disappointment. This isn't really what I thought it was going to be. And as you think about your disappointments, what it reveals to you is it shows you what you're really living for. And Jesus says, you look at this life like it's everything. But I'm telling you, the greatest promise I hold out for you is in the life to come. And if you truly believe that, you will approach this life very differently. The way you live it will change. I know that that kind of change is possible because I've gone through some measure of that in my own life with respect to money. I used to have a very unhealthy relationship with money. Very unhealthy. Jeannie will tell you I have a... a, Maybe the opposite problem. Now, I have a completely frivolous relationship with money. I don't care about money. If we lose a bunch of money, I only worry about how that will affect my family and Jeannie's heart. I don't really care. Money to me is like next to nothing in importance, but it didn't always used to be like that. Money used to have a vice grip over my heart. And the thing that changed this one aspect, I'm not saying I'm perfect, i got a long way to go, but in this area of my life, Jesus has changed me profoundly. And a lot of it has to do with this view of eternity and a renewed view of what this life really is for. And it has protected my heart from worry, from insecurity, from the measuring nonsense that so many people waste their lives in. I'm not saying I don't like when I get money. Okay? But really, money is like food. I'm happy when I have a good meal, but I can also eat saltine crackers and go on with my life. What about you? What is it that breaks you? And here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't really have faith in the promises I extend to you, you really can't be faithful in this life. Commentator and author Sam Storms really gave me this beautiful phrase that I just read this past week. It so affected me. Here's what it says. Faithfulness is the fruit of faith. Faithfulness is is the fruit of faith. If you forget everything else I said, please remember this. How we live our lives is entirely a measure of what we believe and how truly and deeply we believe it. Jesus says to the one who places their faith in me to the end, They will get the victor's crown. You have to understand that Smyrna had a big, big stadium. Smyrna was famous in the ancient world for its sports competitions. They would have understood this language, that the crown that he's referring to, the Greek word Stephanos, is the the victor's crown in an athletic competition. It's not a real crown made of precious metals. It's really just a laurel leaf wrapped around the head. All it means is it's for bragging rights to say, I finished the race. I came in first place. I just got to take a moment to brag on my wife. She ran a 5K yesterday and she came in first place for the women in her age division. Go, Genie. All right, now I've sufficiently embarrassed her. But the the reason I say this is because that, that performance in the race didn't just come out of the blue. She's been conditioning a lot. She's been watching what she eats, she's been running, she's been doing push ups. I've had to do a lot of massaging because her muscles are all sore from all this torture she's doing. And what she taught me through that experience, I, I, I've watched, I'll watch a 5K, but I, I don't think i ever participate in one. What she taught me is that victory in the race requires conditioning before the race. You don't just enter a race and hope to win because a race isn't simply won on sheer willpower. You've got to also move your legs And if your legs aren't ready to hold the strain you're putting on them, your legs will buckle. She finished in 2944. I might have ridden a bike that fast, but I don't think right now with the condition my legs are in, I could do that. So if this is a true statement, here's the lesson putting it all together. He says, I got you, but you've got to take his word for it. Because if you never climb over the edge of the cliff, all that faith is nothing. And that's why if you want to be more faithful, the goal is not to struggle to be more faithful. If faithfulness is the fruit of faith and you want your faithfulness to grow, then the thing you got to focus on is growing your faith, not your faithfulness. Do you understand that principle? It's a little confusing. Let me break it down for you. If you want to be a more faithful Christian, stop trying to be a more faithful Christian and become a more faith-filled Christian. You will not become a more faithful Christian by trying to figure out what's the right thing to do and keep pretending you like doing it. That will never work, and that's why so many of us try so hard and consistently fail. We're trying so hard to be faithful, but the honest truth is we don't have a lot of faith. We're trying to live a certain way that defies, that goes against what we really believe. So we learn in church, faithfulness is giving up your money to the poor and the needy and to the work of the kingdom of God. All right, I'll try to be faithful. But you don't really believe that that's where the money's value is to be found. Then you will keep trying to give away your money. And with every dollar you give away, you will get angrier in your spirit. You will see it as a setback to your progress. One more handicap. One more, look at this. Why do we have to give all this money? And you'll struggle to do the right thing because you don't believe the right thing. If you want to grow in faithfulness, put all your energy into growing in your faith. Believing that God is who he said he is and take his promises at his word. You know, we teach our kids, uh, kids, money is not the important thing. Working hard, being a good person is. But do they learn that from really looking at our lives? Are they really learning from us, those of us who have kids, are they learning through our lives what our mouths are saying to them? What we believe really ultimately defines how we live. And if faithfulness is the fruit of faith, then the best way to become more faithful is to become more faith-filled. Before I end, I just need to say this. In no way do I want to diminish the suffering that we as American Christians go through. Suffering is real in the American church. And some of you are in the midst of it right now. But I also want to say to you, we need to acknowledge this. Our worst day is lived out in the context of one of the wealthiest, most prosperous, hope-filled, just societies that have ever marked this earth. You could be a hater and say the system's broken and all that, but I'm telling you right now, our worst day is lived out against the backdrop of a very, very great place. I recently saw a video put together by the folks at waterislife.com. Have any of you guys seen this? It's first world problems being spoken by third world people in their setting. You know, that's a meme these days, First World Problems. We say it a lot. It is jarring to watch the complaints that typically come out of an American mouth spoken through the lips of somebody who is living in total destitute poverty. That, that contrast was so jarring, it disturbed me. And so I, I don't want to play the video for you, but I put together a couple slides just to give you an illustration of what this feels like. The feathers in my down pillow keep poking me in the face. There are too many choices. I can't decide what to eat. Here's one. My house is so big, I had to buy two wireless routers. Let me get out the violin. Oh, man. My stupid DVR cut off the last five minutes of my show. Have you ever said any of those things? I have. I think I've said all of them. And I just think about that. And the reason I'm showing this is not to make you feel guilty, but to say this. If we really believe that in Christ, every Christian is part of a family, then I'm saying this to tell you that all over the world, we have brothers and sisters who are bearing a much greater burden than we are. And even as we think about our response to our own suffering, it is so important we remember to stand with others who are suffering. I get so blessed when someone prays for a meal at my house and they remember to lift up a prayer for those who don't have a meal to eat today. And i got to tell you, we, we really need to make a commitment to stand with others who are struggling and bearing greater pain than we will ever understand in our lives. And it's not just poverty, but all over the world, Christian persecution is at an all-time high. In fact, it is now an established statistic that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, followed closely behind by Muslims. So those are the two most persecuted religious groups on this planet, and actually, um, Christians are more persecuted by a pretty substantial margin than even Muslims are. By by at least one account published in Reuters, the Reuters report said 100 million Christians today are facing active persecution at some level. The loss of a job, the confiscation of property, physical and bodily harm, imprisonment. At least 100 million Christians worldwide are the victims of active religious persecution. Not just the victims of war or random crime, but because of their faith, they are singled out for mistreatment. By another account, which statistically may be a little more dubious, some people say as many as 150,000 Christians are killed, martyred every year for their faith. More conservative estimates put it at about 100,000, but do you realize that's equivalent to a Christian being killed for their faith every five minutes of every day? I think it's important that we commit ourselves to stand with our brothers and sisters who are suffering like the Christians at Smyrna did. So that in our own way, we become the voice of Jesus to say to them, we see you. Because he sees you, we see you. And you are not alone in this. I want to encourage you to get informed about what's happening to our brothers and sisters all over the world. And then once you get informed, get down on our knees. Let's pray for them. And if you are born a fighter, if you're one of those people that when you see injustice, it makes you mad. Let God use that righteous anger and fight for those who need someone to fight for them. Let me also simply say this as we close. It's not just going to happen out there. Already in our country, the writings on the wall. We need to get our hearts ready to join them. Today, the anti-Christian sentiment in the United States is sharply on the rise. I believe with all my heart that my children are going to grow up in a world that I won't even understand. That they will have to be Christians in a world where being a Christian isn't so easy, where their biggest struggle isn't, oh, quiet time is so hard. I mean, those are our first world Christian problems today, aren't they? Dumb Bibles so heavy, I wish I could afford to get the one for my iPad. And you know, We've got these first world Christian problems. I think our children will grow up in a world where there will be outright persecution leveled against them for their faith in this country. And I want to encourage you, get your heart ready, not only to read about persecution in the news, but to stand firmly for Christ in the face of it yourself and train your children to do it. Right now, we have a shocking lack of active persecution of the church in the West. In Europe and in North America, there isn't very much persecution. And here's what John Stott, the late pastor and British uh, author, said about it. The ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity or love. The world sees in us nothing to hate. But I can promise you this. That if we live out loud and faithfully for Jesus, the world will have reason to hate us and the hatred will come. And one day, we will need to read Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna for ourselves. And on that day, I think he will say to us what he said to them. You are treated this way for no other reason than your faith in me. And I want you to know I see that. I see what you're going through, and don't worry, I've got you. No matter what happens in this life, I've got you. You're secure, you're safe. Believe me, and live out this life accordingly. I want to ask you just to bow your heads and let's enter a short time of reflection and response. For the moment, let's just bookmark the suffering church around the world and let's just talk about our own pain because it's there. I know it is. Some of you right now are living in pain. And it's really a matter of whether you survive this or not. How are you processing that pain? How are you reacting to it? I think the words of Jesus are for us this morning. Do you realize that it's the enemy who lies to you and says, you're struggling for no reason? No one sees you, no one cares. You're alone. Just bail. God says, He sees. He knows how hard it is for you to persevere. And your perseverance greatly honors Him. But He also doesn't want us to hang on because we're stubborn or because we're strong, but because we really believe that He's got us. That if I hold on long enough, I will see His faithfulness in my life. We don't hold on because we have faith in ourselves. We hold on because we have faith in Him. And if we really believe what He says, we will be faithful. If we really believe what He says, we will find that we can be faithful. So, how do you need to respond to God this morning? Why don't you take a minute, just talk back to him in your own heart. If you're in pain, bring it to him and receive his words. I see you. I've got you. Just pray for a couple minutes. Let me encourage us also to just take a moment right now to acknowledge the fact that while we have our struggles, we have family all over the world that are also struggling greatly. Can we just pray, God, as you get me through my pain and struggle, move my heart to stand with those who are bearing a great burden as well. Let's just pray for the suffering church all over the world, that they also would receive the presence, the comfort and encouragement of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge this morning that so often you use pain in our lives to reveal our faith. and Sometimes you use our pain to show us how little faith we really have. So God, we pray that you would take us in our weakness in the wrong ways we have thought and believed. Wash us in the blood of Christ and give us a new mind and a new heart. Help us to believe you, to stop seeing your truths as weak gestures, as little truisms that don't bring change. We believe you. Help us to believe you, to take your word as truth. Help us not to listen to our own hearts and our own pain, but to listen to you. And to have more faith so that we might become more truly faithful. for those straining so hard to be faithful. Lord, help us to stop our striving and fix our hearts on you. You make good promises and you keep your word. Everything you say is true. So give us faith and make us faithful. Meet us in our pain and struggle and bring us the same comfort and hope that you brought to our ancient brothers and sisters in Smyrna. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.